I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Isaiah. We'll be looking at chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 17. But for context, we will read from verse 1 all the way through 17. So Isaiah chapter 7, starting at verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Sherejashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be be faint because of the two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy who knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So far the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord and 
Savior Jesus Christ. Today we have a prophecy, and woven within that prophecy is a sign. Now, signs are important, they're everywhere. Some are commands, they tell us to stop, to go. You cannot make a right turn here. Some are for information. They tell us about store hours and where stores are located. Some are large, as large as billboards, and some are small. Our text this morning is a prophecy, and it's about to alert us. There's a sign at when this event will take place. So our theme this morning as we examine Scripture is Isaiah prophesies bad news for some, but good news for others. And we'll look at this in four points. Point number one, a sign offered. Point number two, a sign refused. Point three, a sign imposed. And lastly, point four, a sign fulfilled. Now, if we were to dive into the text, starting at verse 10, and make our way through to verse 17, it would be hard to do without some sort of context, not only from the surrounding verses in Isaiah chapter 7, but also from other areas of the Bible. And before we can talk about the sign, we need to talk about why the sign was needed. If we go back to verse 1, we see that Judah is attacked by the king of Syria and the king of Israel. And remember, Israel split into two kingdoms after the king Solomon. Israel was the northern kingdom under King Jeroboam, and Judah was the southern kingdom under King Rehoboam. Now after this first attack by Syria and Israel, the news of a coalition formed between the enemies of Judah, an attack that would try to conquer Judah, was forthcoming. Their goal was to set up a king for themselves in Judah, the son of Tabeel. Now, under extreme political pressure, Ahaz took matters into his own hands. In 2 Kings 16, verses 6 through 8, it reads, and he sent messengers to the king of Assyria to try to form his own coalition. So the Lord sends Isaiah to speak with Ahaz. The Lord explains that these two powers are nothing but smoldering stumps, that they're nothing to fear. And if Ahaz could be persuaded to do nothing, Keep clear of compromising alliances that the Lord could be trusted to keep his promises. And when Isaiah spoke with Ahaz, his trust in the Lord should have been complete with the words in verse 7. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. But Ahaz wasn't a good king. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David did. He has walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. 
He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Yet the Lord in his mercy and his grace goes to Ahaz and informs him of the depth and the power of Syria and Ephraim. And the Lord says in verse 8, the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razim. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramelia. And the Lord ends there with a challenge. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Israel, known as Ephraim and Syria, they're just two smoldering stumps. Who are they against the power and the might of the Lord? One commentator points out the power of what Isaiah's statement implies. The words left unsaid by Isaiah speaks the loudest. The head of Judah is Jerusalem. The head of Jerusalem is David's son. And a throne established forever. He says here was a situation of divine strength and kingship sustained by divine promises. And who is there able to defeat that? The Lord is calling Ahaz to faith in him and to further solidify his faith. The Lord offers a sign to King Ahaz. And in verse 10 and 11, the Lord says to him, Ask a sign of the Lord your God and let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. See, the Lord is telling Ahaz, whatever will increase his faith and trust in the Lord's promises. Imagine that. God is telling Ahaz, anything that you want, I will perform anything that will ignite a flicker of flame of faith in your heart. The Lord is ready to stop at nothing. The deepest of the depths, the highest of the heights. The sign could be anything at all a natural occurrence, or a supernatural one. So what's it going to be, Ahaz? Isaiah states that the Lord will essentially move heaven and earth to perform a sign for Ahaz, to show the trustworthiness of God. But evidence cannot create faith. It can only welcome it. When you are blind in faith and you do not trust God, a sign, no matter the scale, is of no importance to you. So how does Ahaz respond? I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Which comes across as a pious pious remark. And how could it not be? Jesus Christ answers Satan this way. 
Remember in Matthew 4 when Satan takes Jesus to the holy city. They're at the pinnacle of the temple as Satan tells Jesus to throw himself down because if Christ were who he said he was, he would not be harmed. The difference between these two responses is that one is rooted in unbelief and the other is pious. Jesus responds with a pious rebuttal because Satan is demanding a sign to be be performed to prove who Jesus is. And asking for a sign from God is to treat him like a pet. Like God is your labradoodle. And when he rolls over for you, then you will reward him with faith. That line of thought is rooted in unbelief and sin. But there's an even greater danger for Ahaz. See, it's one level of sin to ask God for a sign because you do not trust him outright. But it's another level to refuse what God has provided for you. God wants to be trusted. And he gave Ahaz the choice to ask God of whatever he could think of. But Ahaz did not need a sign. He set up alliance with Assyria. He did not need to inquire about how to manage his foreign affairs. Nor did he need a sign from the Lord because Ahaz was not going to trust the Lord. He placed his trust in man. This king of Judah is unlike David from whom he descends. See, David had a great resource to aid him in his foreign policy, but an aid is only as good as you make use of it. In First and Second Samuel, you can read about David inquiring to the Lord about what his next move should be, especially in First Samuel 23, where we see that in verse 2, David asked, shall I go and attack the Philistines? In verse 4, his men are afraid, so David seeks the Lord again. In verse 10 and 12, he asked if the Lord will come down to Keilah and if the men of Keilah will turn David over to the men of Saul. So what did David and his men do? They took the advice of the Lord and got up and went where they could go. See, unlike Ahaz, he did not need the wisdom of God. The problem had been solved. There was no need for God. But what did the Lord offer David for seeking him? Specific details on the plans of his enemies. David inquires, and the Lord answers. And they are spared because David sought the Lord. But Ahaz, he uses a veil of piety to conceal his sinful heart. I will not put the Lord God to the test. Ahaz even shows a misunderstanding of the knowledge of God. That Ahaz could hide his unbelief behind a veil of piety. God already knew the content and character of Ahaz's heart. There is no veil that the Lord our God in his infinite wisdom cannot see through or see around. 
He knows David's heart. He knows Ahaz's heart. And he knows your heart. You cannot hide your unbelief, so confess it. I believe, but help my unbelief. David inquires to the Lord, help me. But Ahaz cries to Assyria, help me. See, Ahaz is making his decision based upon his unbelief. The veil of piety that Ahaz uses to hide his unbelief ultimately rejects the covenant that's made with David. Remember the Lord said to David in 2 Samuel 7, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. If Ahaz trusted God and believed he was a God who had the power to uphold his covenants, Ahaz would not have to make a coalition with Assyria. God described Ephraim and Syria, remember, as smoldering stumps. You do not need to be afraid. Ahaz would only need to believe in God and trust in him. The victory would belong then to Judah. But Ahaz was a covenant denier, which is unlike Abraham. See, Abraham trusted in the word and promises of God. When Abraham, when God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Abraham believed in that promise. That when the Lord said to him in Genesis 22, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. Abraham complied because the Lord promised. And when Abraham held that knife over top of Isaac, he knew God would be faithful in his promises. He might not have known how God would accomplish what he said he would, but he trusted that God's wisdom was greater than his. Abraham's heart trusted the covenant-keeping God. So what is your heart? Does it believe in the covenant promises made by God like Abraham? Or does it reject them like Ahaz? Is that your heart? Do you seek the Lord like David? Or you discredit God and put your trust in external things like the power of man? God wants to be trusted. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust that he is who he says he is, faithful in keeping his covenant promises. It's like the sign of baptism. Do you believe that when you see baptism administered, that just like water removes dirt, so does the blood of Jesus Christ remove sin? Or is that not enough? 
Are you looking outside of God's promises to bring you comfort and security? This is what Ahaz thought. And shortly we'll see how that worked out for him. Ahaz rejected the offered sign of the Lord. That doesn't mean the Lord will not give his sign anyways. No. Isaiah's reaction to Ahaz's word demonstrates that Ahaz was acting in unbelief. Instead of a sign offered, we have now a sign imposed. In verse 13, Isaiah speaks not only to the king of Judah, but to all the house of David. It is a command for not for one man, but is plural. It's for the whole house of David. Their failure goes beyond their imperfect king, but to the whole tribe of Judah. And look carefully at how the language of Isaiah changes. In verse 11, he tells Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. So even though Ahaz is a wicked king, Isaiah frames the question as your God. Yet after the rejection of the sign, Isaiah says, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah does not say your God, but my God. It's incredible that the Lord offered grace to Ahaz. Even though he was a king who did not walk in the ways of the Lord, there was grace extended to him. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. But after Ahaz rejects the Lord, no longer is the Lord God Ahaz's God. But Isaiah refers to the Lord as my God. The only way God can be your God is by relying on Him and trusting in Him. And if you reject God, you do not have God. If you want to give the Lord all power and glory due to His name, you need to use Him. You need to pray to Him. Meditate on Him. Know Him. Praise Him. Love Him. And rely and trust in Him. And you need to risk your life upon God's word and trust in his promises. Lose your life for his sake, and you will find life. But for Ahaz and the house of David, judgment is coming. And that is signaled with the pivot in verse 14 with the word, therefore. The sign is given to Ahaz, and To understand what Isaiah is saying, the prophecy gets to be somewhat technical. And I've translated a little bit differently from the translation that you have before you. So you'll see the differences if you follow along in verses 14 through 17. So the translation is as follows for 14 through 17. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey so that he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, 
The land which you are tearing up will be forsaken of both its kings. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house. Such days have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. What does all of this mean? Isaiah informs Ahaz that a child will be born of the virgin, and his name will be Emmanuel, which should not confuse us in light of Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. What might be a little bit harder to understand is what it means that he will eat curds and honey. Now this indicates a diet of poverty in a desolate land. Someone living off yogurt and cottage cheese is not living their best life. And verse 21 and 22 of the same chapter sheds more light on that. But this boy, Emmanuel, born of the virgin, will have a diet of curds and honey with the purpose or the result of knowing how to choose good and evil and refuse evil, which is not merely a moral discernment, but it's a godly disposition. It's a godly character. And when will this Emmanuel come? And this is the bad news for Ahaz and company. Emmanuel will not come before Israel, now that's both northern and southern kingdoms, will be torn up and both kings will be removed from power. Emmanuel will not come until the nation is ruined. And who will bring the ruin of Ahaz to his people? The king of Assyria. Isaiah's proclamation has brilliant irony. And hear what 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 20 and 21 says about the outcome of Ahaz's action, how the king of Assyria treated him. So Tiglath Pelazar, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of all the princes and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria. But it did not help him. Assyria, whom King Ahaz trusted as their national savior, turns instead to be their executioner. You almost want to say, how's that working out for you now, Ahaz? See, it's pride. It's the partner in crime of unbelieving and untrusting human wisdom. The good news is the Davidic dynasty will continue despite Ahaz and his unbelief. But it will not come for Ahaz. It will take time. Not until 700 years later does the child named Emmanuel, born of a virgin, born into poverty, come to rescue his people from tyranny. But the overall prophecy is bad news for Ahaz and for the future of the northern and southern kingdoms. In the not-so-distant future, Assyria will conquer the northern kingdom. The fall will be followed by Judah falling 
and being conquered by Babylon. Then Babylon conquered by the Persians. The Persians conquered by the Greeks. And Greeks finally by the Romans. And it's not until under Roman rule that the promised child arrives and the sign is fulfilled. The Gospel of Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus Christ showing us that the line that comes through Judah until we reach that promised child, Emmanuel, the start of the sign and the promise being fulfilled. In verse 23 of Matthew's Gospel, the first chapter, explains that everything that took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this does not mean that God was not with his people before Jesus Christ, but now he is here in a way that history has never seen before. It's God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and it dwelt among us. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ had a living, breathing, hungry, tired human nature. And even though He was born into poverty with no earthly kingdom, the closest thing Christ had to a throne on earth was the cross. His poverty, it goes beyond being born in a manger with no crib for a bed or on the run from Herod. But Jesus Christ emptied himself of all his riches by taking the form of the servant, born in the likeness of man. He was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. How do you understand that? The king of the universe, the one through whom everything has been created. The one everyone should be serving. Yet he is the one serving them. If you want to talk about being born into poverty, it is the King of kings and the Lord of lords humbling himself as a servant. The king with all the power and all the wisdom is now serving his creation. How far is that chasm from riches to poverty. From Christ being king to becoming a servant. How far is that void? How do you even put that into words? Now regardless of whether we can quantify it, the fact is that the king is here. That God is with us. And Jesus Christ is here for a specific purpose. To rescue his people from the tyranny of the devil. He's not here as a social experiment because he's interested to see how the other side lives. Nor did Emmanuel come for his creation to become the greatest teacher or moral example ever. He's not here to show you the best way to live your life. Jesus Christ came with the purpose to save sinners. For Jesus to atone for his people's sins, he needed to be like them. Jesus needed a human nature to be able to atone for the sin that man was at fault for. 
The blood of bulls and goats will not do. Our human nature enabled him to provide a perfect sacrifice. And his divine nature ensured that it did not need to be repeated. A long-awaited king defeated the last enemy his people would ever face, and that is death. He reconciled the broken relationship between God and his people. This is the hope of Emmanuel, God with us that he became like us in every way but without sin and achieved salvation for his people. This mighty king defeated death so you do not have to feel that sting, that death has no longer any hold over us. Your king fulfilled that long-awaited promise and he crushed the head of the serpent. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the reality is that God is only with you if you trust in Him. If you reject Him, He is not yours. If you are unbelieving and untrusting like Ahaz, a veil of false piety will not fool the Lord. If you're not firm in your faith, you're not firm at all. You cannot fake it. He sees right through all your false acts of righteousness as if they were see-through. You are only fooling yourself. If you confess to trusting in Christ, but your actions grasp to the kings or the idols, of this world, you're just speaking out of both sides of your mouth. God sees right through that. Are you like Ahaz? Are you putting your trust in man? And how is that working out for you? Why don't you trust in someone who will not say yes to helping you, only to plunder you as the Assyrians did to Ahaz. Instead, trust in Jesus Christ, the one who was rich and became poor for your sake, so that you can become rich and be crowned with eternal life. Choose the one who will not put the knife in your back, but in Jesus Christ who took the spikes that were reserved for your hands and for your feet. That is King Jesus. And he is everything that Ahaz is not. And he is only yours if you're willing to trust and rely on him. Amen. Let us pray. Righteous and holy Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you knowing that unbelief runs throughout our veins. Lord, but may we believe and may you help us in our unbelief. 
that we would believe in your covenant promises, that we would believe that you are a God who can do all things, that we can rest in you and not fear the sting of death because of Jesus Christ. Father, may we be comforted by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give to us a strength and a reliance upon Him that when we go out in the world, that they may see Christ, that we may reflect Your glory and give all honor and praise to Your name. It's through Christ's name we pray. Amen.